One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Andy, did you feel that the charges of cultural appropriation that have been... Uh... <laughs> I don't want to talk about the reasons, probably entirely justified, why it, it why it's problematic. Because everything's problematic. Mm-hmm. Everything, right? good, everything, is, everything is, good is problematic. Oh. Sorry. It's brilliant, Isle of Dogs. Oh, Thank right. you. <laughs> there Come we on. go. I can't just remember an hour and a half more joyfully spent. I'm a long-time yeah, I'm lover of Wes Anderson's films. Favourite Wes Anderson? That one. Uh, Tenenbaums is my favourite. Yeah, definitely Tenenbaums. Me too, and I'm, I like Zizou as well. Oh, then Rushmore, I reckon. I love Rushmore. I really liked Mr. Fantastic and Fantastic Mr. Fox. Fantastic Mr. Fox is my yeah. favourite, I, I agree. I, yeah, yeah. I was brilliant film. That's crazy about Budapest, Grand Budapest Hotel. As, um, so back to Isle of Dogs. But it's, oh, yeah, but it's good. It's I thought the cold device of them using the Japanese for the humans was very clever. And I love dogs. I hate all this cat shit. <laughs> I do. I'm not a fan of cat videos. That really, you, never, you never saw my cat, cats and dogs talk. What do you, right. I don't even know what you're talking about. What cats and dogs talk? Oh, I, used to, I used to do a cats and dogs talk where I'd say basically cats have, cats have taken over. You know, it's 20% of internet content is cat related. They're literally taking over our brains. And we, they also spread this terrible thing, Toxoplasma gondio, which is destroying brains. I mean, mm. 60% of the UK population are infected. You're actually going to get rid of 50% of our audience by saying that, though. Yeah, I'm just well, it's not for everyone. It's really? not for everyone. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying, cats. The point about this was dogs. I love dogs. Who was your favourite voice actor? Brian Cranston, oddly. I didn't expect that. But, and Scarlett Johansson, obviously. But. Oh, I was just happy to see Yoko Ono. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, of course. Oh, Yoko, getting her due, quite good. right. She was fantastic. I would commend to listeners... Uh, there's a short essay by Michael Shaben about Wes Anderson, which is the thing in, that I've read in the last 10 years that I most would like to have written. Absolutely incredible, and probably only 3,000 words tops, description of why people who think Wes Anderson's films are twee haven't understood Wes Anderson or life itself mm. which, which is so magnificent and witty and he makes a link between Wes Anderson's films and Pale Fire by Nabokov which as I say it sounds pretentious mm. uh, and reaching a bit but in the way it's delivered, Shaven's such a brilliant writer, it just feels so natural and funny and not a sort of... Um, intellectual response to the material which we often see in critical writing but a kind of emotional response to the material so i think if you google like michael shaben wes anderson it was it, it's it's like something like the new york times or the new york review of books or something like that it, it's such a brilliant essay it's great i mean i just think he's a, a, one of the great modern storytellers <laughs> master i should get him on here he reads yeah yeah if you're listening, if you're listening West, West. <laughs> we're friendly. Um, shall we start? Yeah, let's go. Okay. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you'll find us in a run-down suburban boarding house in Hackney in the late 1950s. Big rooms, high ceilings, thin walls, you get the picture. The landlord's scuttling around downstairs in the cellar and we're getting ourselves ready for a big night out at the docks. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. Joining us today is Peter Watts, 
a, <laughs> a seasoned journalist <laughs> and editor whose huge range of interests include London, drugs, sports and social history. Uh, he's the first person to write a biography of Battersea Power Station up in smoke. Uh, it's published by Paradise Road. And uh, you're also the author of... You're working on a book, aren't you, Peter, about the history of Denmark Street. That's right. Great. Also, listeners, if you are listening to this on Monday the 16th, Tuesday the 17th, Wednesday the 18th, or even Thursday the 19th of April, Peter is doing an event at Pages of Hackney Bookshop on Thursday the 19th with Owen Hopkins and Dave Hill called Ruins of Modern London. That's correct. It's £5 a ticket. Childcare, throw that in. Cost of getting there. Will it be worth it? It's going to be more than worth it. <laughs> Great, good. <laughs> not good, you have Peter's well. We're also joined as a guest by Gary Budden. Uh, he is co-director of groundbreaking indie Influx Press, who published our great backlist favourite, A Trib, by Edie Williams, uh, which just won a prize, so congratulations to her, congratulations to you. Thank you very much. And um, you are a practitioner of landscape punk. <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> and your collection, Hollow Shores, was published by um, Dead Ink last October. The book, Gary and Peter are joining us to discuss today, is The Low Life by Alexander Barron. First published in 1963, and if ever a book deserved the tag cult classic, it's this one. But before we go to the dogs, as it were, we're delighted to introduce this episode's sponsor, Spoke, a very cool online menswear company. They design chinos with a difference, ones that fit you. And I speak as a man who has fit chinos that have never fit me ever. <laughs> and not the other way around. With Spokes Fit Finder, you just enter a few simple details online, and in a minute you'll have the perfect fit. There's 200 size combinations. Spoke obsess over every detail, something we recommend and like on this podcast, the uh, attention to detail. Fabric lining fasteners to the wash. Ordering from Spoke is like going to your own tailor without the hassle or the expense. With Spoke, you get sharp, personalised design delivered to your door in just two days. Sounds great, though, doesn't it? You're a chino wearer, Andy? No. <laughs> <laughs> but for chino wearers, it sounds fantastic. It's a backlisted listeners. If you go to www.spoke-london.com and place an order, you'll get uh, £20 off your first order. Just use the code BACKLISTED20. Terms and conditions apply. It's also, it seems, quite appropriate, given that uh, the main character of The Low Life was uh, a Hoffman presser, working press increases into trousers. Ah, yes. So, uh, well done. Yes, I thought not least. <laughs> so, thank you to Spoke. Uh, uh, we're all here drinking uh, various grades of industrial strength porter. <laughs> Uh, Nikki, as always, is on the mezcal. I'm drinking water. <laughs> Listeners, but... we're still working our way through the mezcal from the Under the Volcano <laughs> yeah, episode. Indeed, and we'll be doing it for many weeks to come. <laughs> so let's switch seamlessly from pants to punts. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been reading, oh. Andy? <laughs> Forgive me, everyone. Well, all right. So first what I'm going to say is what I've actually been reading this week, and I said on Twitter, they're basically like... Lee Child novels, but for me, I've been reading um, Edward St. Aubyn's Patrick Melrose novels. I read the first two, Nevermind and Bad News, and I read both of them in a morning each. Have you read any of them? I feel I have, but I haven't, no. I'm not going to say any more because we need to do I it. need to finish reading all right. five of them, but wow. Great. Okay. But what I wanted to talk about, I've also been reading this week a novel for children called Ludo and the Star Horse by Mary Stewart. This was originally published in 1974. This was one of my favourite books when I was a child. and Sort of Lucy Mangan-induced in, kind of trip. Yeah, I was trying to think about books that I really liked as a child which weren't so well known. And I was trying to think how I first encountered this book. So Mary Stewart is one of those writers, a bit like Nora Lofts, funnily enough, who sold a lot of books, particularly in the 70s, she only died in 2014. She was 97. And she, she was the author of books, she, The Crystal Caves. Do you remember that? They're yeah. books about Merlin. They were sold in hundreds of thousands of copies. I, I remember them from my childhood. I mean, my, my parents, my mum particularly, had a lot of her kind of historical romances. And she also wrote three books for children, one of which is this one, Ludo and the Star Horse. The way I got to this book was via Jack and Nori that I remember it being read on Jack and Nori 
and I've been able to look up on the BBC genome when it was. It was read, it was read in September 1975, when I would have been seven, and it was read by the actor Edward Petherbridge. And I remember at the end of that week, we went to the library every Saturday morning. On the Saturday morning, I went to the library to see if they had a copy of this book, Ludo and the Star Horse, and they did, and I borrowed it and renewed the ticket through till Christmas because I didn't want anyone else to have it <laughs> because I loved it so much. I read it and read it and reread it. And then what happened is, because I was seven, uh, I then forgot the name of the title and the author. Mm. And I spent literally decades asking people, saying, do you remember this book that was on Jack and Ori when we were kids? It was about a boy and a horse who the boy is knocked out and he has to travel through each of the houses of the Zodiac to get home again. I mean, even I say, what a brilliant premise. I mean, it makes, my, it makes the, the, the hairs on my arm stand on as I say odd, it to you, right? It's very odd how that happens. I had exactly the same experience with a book called The Giant Under the Snow by John Gordon, which was a, a puffin. And I had it read out at school. They used to, they used to do that. The teachers were bored. Or we're going to have story hour or whatever it was, which I always used to love. And I, couldn't, I didn't get the name of either the site. And it's, again, the same thing, interrogating people about... The, that there were these things called the leather men who had, you know, who were mm. just sort of thin brown skin running around in this. And there was the no, main character was called John Quill. If we'd had the internet now, well, this is what I'm going to say. Been, been... So I spent decades yeah. trying to find out what this book was, <laughs> and then I, it became a habitual mm. Google search, and nothing ever came up. That I would type in the words, you know, Jackanory Zodiac. Uh, Switzerland to see what to see what I got and then about 10 years ago I it was being mentioned on a on a forum somewhere who do you books you remember from Jack and Ori and there it was Ludo and stuff I've got to buy that so I bought it here it is I've got my copy here I I read this to Alex when he was small enough and listeners I (laughs) I won't lie to you, I couldn't read the last chapter because I was crying so much. <laughs> that is how, that is, I, it's such a wonderful, magical book, this. I, now, as I say this, I'm going to read you just the opening two paragraphs. Chapter one, home. This is the story of something that happened a long time ago to a boy called Ludo, and you can believe it or not, as you please. It was told to me by Ludo's own grandson, and personally I believe every word of it, but you, Amelie, must judge for yourself. Ludo Spiegel was 11 years old, and he lived in a little mountain village in Bavaria called Oberfeld. Herr Spiegel, Ludo's father, was very poor. He owned three goats and a cow, and that was all, if you don't count his wife and son. (laughs) Even the old horse he kept for work and the cottage he lived in, poor as it was, did not belong to him, but to the king, who owned the whole valley and all the land for many miles around. So, so far, so fairy story. And what he does, what, sorry, what Mary Stewart does brilliantly in this is as he passes through each of the houses of the Zodiac and enters into either conversation or negotiation or physical fights with, say, a crab or an archer, is he's being introduced to the idea of death as he goes on. And something or someone must die in order to get home. So it is the most brilliant mixture of simple storytelling, uh, imagination and learning in terms of the referencing within the Zodiac, within horoscopes, but also something useful that you carry out of it, which I had remembered even though I had forgotten the name of the book and the name of the author. And it's the thing I think that's stays with us about books is often we can't remember the story and we can't remember the author we may not even remember the title but we carry around with us the feeling of the book more than anything else you know and so coming back to this after what what was then a 30 year gap was a really uncanny uh, reading experience so i would sort of say to people the one who will now be thinking oh ludo and the star horse by mary stewart i'd love to read that it's out of print and uh, Hodder, who republished this a few years ago, let go out of print, and the cheapest copy I could find online was a hundred quid. Mm, so I am. Um, I apologise to you all uh, for that. Perhaps there's a conversation to be had, Andy. 
I, I think somebody should be bringing this back into print. I, I, we were talking earlier, do books deserve to be in print? I was, I'm a bit sceptical about that phrase. It deserves to be in print. Well, you know, there are books aren't only in print because of an aesthetic reason. And yet this book, you know, I feel is such a classic of its genre and so neglected that, yeah, I, I, it deserves to be in print. What age is it? What I, age for children? Seven, eight. There's a there's a there's a signed copy on eBay for seventy five quid at the moment. If anybody'd like to <laughs> anybody like to chip in for that, when's your birthday? Yeah, he's, he's actually quite soon. <laughs> it is next month. Anyway, John, what what have you enough of that? So that's memory lane for me. What have you um, been reading this week? Well, I've been reading something very very different from that, but quite in a way has strange connections with 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 uh, Alexander Barron, only because it is it is a London story. Uh, it's a book by uh, uh, Laura Thompson, who was a guest on Backlisted, uh, did Nancy Mitford for us last year. It's called Rex v. Edith Thompson, A Tale of Two Murders. It is the story of the Thompson Bywaters ma- murder case in which Freddie Bywaters and Edith Thompson were both hanged for the murder of Percy Thompson. A classic love triangle. Percy Thompson was married to Edith. Freddie became her lover. In fact, they, they, he lived in the, in the house that they lived in, in Ilford. It's a kind of Venn diagram of suburban London in the 1920s. It's courtroom drama, you know, which we all love, and we know that the outcome is bad and it's going to involve hanging, which is always... And then the, the bit that I think makes it most interesting, there was no evidence to hang her, but the letters that she wrote to Freddie Bywaters are so powerful and erotic and beautiful that she became a a victim of the need for society to purge them she was the woman who had the new woman you know the woman who had a job who kind of was was open about sex it was sort of a, a whole society kind of and even the feminists, Virginia Woolf and Rebecca West, rounded on her. Yes, Rebecca West said some amazing thing about yeah. her, didn't she? So but, sort of. I mean, it's basically this is the class. She was seen as a, as a jumpy upstart. Yeah, okay. T. S. Eliot also was incredibly hauteur bar about it. <laughs> so it became this kind of. I mean, I'll, I'll read you just a tiny little bit. The bit, obviously, you know, with our ongoing stories of the suburbs. Laura is, I think, just a glorious writer and tells the story wonderfully. It's, a, it's, so, it's such a depressing story that somebody could have been hanged, basically, because all his letters she destroyed. He, because he was a, basically a bit of a thug, and a, I mean, you know, sexually kind of magnetic, but obviously a bit of a thug. But they had to kill her because of what she'd written. But I just like this idea of, of, of Ilford in the 19... 19- Ilford albeit of mushroom growth, has a pretty conceit of itself, said the Evening News in 1907. Its street vistas are beautifully monotonous, every front garden is a replica of its neighbour, while the names of the thoroughfares have a poetry and a distinction that would be found hard to beat elsewhere. It was quite true that Ilford, just across the border from East London, was a dream of homogeneity. Long straight streets crossed by other long straight streets, the grid system of Houseman's Paris replicated in a couple of miles of Essex. It was also true that these villa-lined streets had names of aristocratic seemliness, Belgrave Road, Seymour Gardens, Stanhope Gardens, De Vere Gardens, Mayfair Avenue. They would form the landscape pleasing and spacious and poster bright, traversed by Edith almost every day for three years. What had been a village was developed alongside a branch of the Great Eastern Railway known as the Fairlop Loop, which opened in 1903 was intended to encourage the new Essex settlements. Chigwell was another. Ilford was, therefore, one of several Edwardian suburbs, yet somehow it became definitively suburban, a place where people mowed their lawns every Sunday, raised children and geraniums, kept cats that perched sleekly on garden walls, played bowls on the green in Valentine's Park, and died without fuss in their beds. It is impossible to overstate the the importance of this milieu in pushing the Thompson-Bywaters case to prominence. The Ilford murder was what the case was called, always and only, as if nobody could quite believe that such a thing had happened in such a place. Ilford murder mystery, so the story began in the Times on 5th of October 1922. Then as the days ticked on, Ilford murder charge, Ilford crime, Ilford inquest, Ilford exhumation, Ilford murder trial, Ilford verdict, Ilford executions today. Um, It's a really, really interesting bit of social history. And it's almost unrecoverable, that sense of, you know, how could this woman hang? Mm. (laughs) And the only people who sided with her 
one of the characters in the book, her sister, who remained loyal to the end and didn't talk at all for 50 years to anybody about it, gave two incredibly bitter interviews towards the end of the life. It's, it's a great story. I, I mean, Sounds fantastic, um, actually. And I have to say, has not had a single review. I mean, back in my day, I would have thought a story like this wow. uh, would, have, would, have, would have been reviewed. So um, uh, that's, That'll be the institutional suburban... Uh, bias against suburbia that I'm always talking about. Peter's written about this as well, haven't you, Peter? <laughs> Peter comes from... See, I come from Croydon. Peter comes from our, the bitter rival borough of Sutton. The shit Croydon. The shit Croydon. <laughs> <laughs> but I, just, I, th- I thought it was specificity of place is really important in the low life. I thought it was quite an interesting... Yeah, thing. yeah. Because the fact that there's a brilliant bit at the beginning of the book where he says this is Hackney, and Hackney isn't the East End. The East End starts down mm-hmm. the road. Well, we'll come on to that, because I know, Gary, we, we were trying not to talk about this book in the pub before. <laughs> and we failed. Uh, but we, we all reread this, didn't we, mm. for, for this? And Nikki, you hadn't read it before, had you? Did no. you? Nikki, did you like it? I loved it, yeah. I really enjoyed it. Was it what you thought it was going to be? No, and actually I was, I was half the time expecting something really horrific to happen and really pleased that it didn't. Mm. You know, it felt like it was leading to no, a big, big No spoilers, but... Uh, <laughs> no spoilers, yes, but I know what you mean. He keeps... Yeah, yeah. One of the things so good about it, I agree with you, Nicky, is he keeps moving to places you don't expect yeah, him to yeah, move. Yeah. We'll pick this up again after some adverts. Stay tuned to this. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Money Maker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. So uh, we're going to talk about The Low Life by Alexander Barron. But just before I ask the traditional question of our guests about where they first encountered this book, I would like to say that this is a sort of a first for Backlisted. That the reason we wanted to do The Low Life on the podcast is that I bought a copy maybe two or three years ago because I was collecting the Harville's London fiction series that was published in the early noughties. This book, Capital by Maureen Duffy, Caught by Henry Green, Fowler's End by Gerald Kirsch. And then I didn't read it, I had it on the shelf. And then after we did The Slaves of Solitude by Patrick Hamilton on the podcast last year, several listeners said, if you like that book, you'd really like London Belongs to Me by Norman Collins, or you'd really like Of Love and Hunger by Julia McLaren Ross, and you'd really like The Low Life by Alexander Barrett. And I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get it off the shelf and, and, and read it. And I, I remember, this is only a few months ago, and I remember it blew me away. I think I read it in a day, and I said to John, I emailed John, and I said, we have to do this book on the podcast. This is one of those books that I can't imagine that anyone, any of our listeners would not pick this up, read it, and just enjoy it. It is such a powerful, yeah. gripping, well-written book. Yeah. and I, so, so it's thanks to the listeners that we're doing the book on here. And, of course, I'd sort of... It had been buried in my mind because I'd left Harvard by the time we did it. But, the, I mean, the Harvard London fiction series was a great series of, of books. Cut short, I have to say, because Harville was, was sold to, to Penguin Random House. But it was all the really the brainchild of Paul Bagley, who's now at Picador. But Gerald Kirsch's Fowler's End, and as you say, Maureen Duffy, Kenny Green. I have two of them here. Marvellous. I'm, I'm very jealous of your edition mm. of The Low Life, and I'm going to have to find one online, I think, and buy it secondhand. It has, it has also a cracking... Jamie uh, Keenan did the cover. It's a brilliant cover. A, cr- a cracking, that's right, a cracking introduction by Ian Sinclair, which we'll probably talk about. But so, so let's talk about then the, the low life first. Gary, where did you first encounter this book? It all came from when I moved to London when I was about 22, back in 2005. Um, and for no real reason, I moved to Stoke Newington because I think I had some friends there. And just living in the area became... I'm just always naturally interested in writing about about the place I'm living in, which led me quite obviously to Ian Sinclair. I think uh, the first book I read of his was London Orbital. I can't remember which book of Sinclair's it was, but he talks a lot about Alexander Barron. Mm. And I was very interested... He lights out in the territory, I seem to remember. It might be that one, yeah. He talks about him a lot and mentions him in a lot of his books. And I was like, it sounded fascinating. I think by this time... The Harvard edition, I think, had already gone out out of print, yeah. and this would be a few years before 
Black which Spring. Was the, the Black Spring edition, which was yeah. 2010. Um, but I was living uh, by Stoke Newington Common, and there's a library just up the road, and I took out... They had a first edition of uh, the novel, so I had to get it out of the library. It was, it was out, out of print yeah. at the time. And that was my first encounter with it, and I read it, and I sort of loved it in the way we were talking about how everyone loves it, and I couldn't really work out why it was out of print. We should say... The Low Life is currently in print from Black Spring, but very sadly, because the founder of Black Spring died a few months ago, it has become clear to me, while I was chasing up one of the other books, that some of the Black Spring books may be slipping out of print. So if you want to read this book at the end of... Uh, if you don't have a copy and you want to read it after listening to the podcast, may I suggest that you, you, you buy one sooner rather than later, because I don't know how long it's going to be around for. Peter... Mm. So that's where Gary encountered the low life. Where did you... You write about London a lot. Where did you yeah. first come across Alexander Barron? Well, I started with, with King Dido, which is um, another of um, Barron's book. I was working at Time Out. I was feature writer at Time Out um, from 2005 to 2010. And then I was made redundant. And my leaving present from um, the person sitting next to me, Rebecca, who was a news editor, was a copy of King Dido by Alexander Barron. And... Um, I wasn't really reading fiction at the time. I was really just reading lots and lots and lots of non-fiction about London. So I didn't really know what to make of this book. It's not hugely attractive edition. Am I allowed to say that? You're allowed to say it. And I was kind of puzzled, you know, and she was saying, look, this is a great London writer. She couldn't believe I'd never heard of him. I went home. I was redundant, so I had nothing else to do. So um, I read it and, and I loved it. You know, I, I loved it. It was, um, I loved the um, evocation of place. You know, it really felt like, somewhere that I wanted to go and see which is what I did so because I was redundant I had nothing else to do <laughs> I, I went to Bethnal Green and I went and found the street that it's set on um, King Dido is, is a book that he wrote in 69 which is about it's not a gang war is it that's not right century, century, it's, it's sort of turn of the century gang not exactly gang it's set it's really, criminals. It? Yeah, well, it's it's pre -first it begins World war. with the coronation of yeah. that's right yeah. I forget it says on the first page of the novel I think but it's all set very much in a single street there's a pub at the end there's some shops and the way he wrote about the, that street um, and he names it it's called Hare Marsh um, it's, it's called Rabbit, Rabbit Marsh, Marsh sorry it's yeah. called Rabbit Marsh but it's based in a place called Hare, Hare Marsh, Marsh yeah. um, just near Brick Lane and it was you know, it, it was very clearly a real place, and I think that's that's something that really fascinated me because it was a it's a tiny little street. A, is that where his mother's from, or is yeah, I think his grandmother. Yeah. So you found that one, and then after that, I read The Low Life about a couple of years later, and then I read another one called Rosie Hogarth, which is set yeah. around here, set in Angel. Yeah, we were recording near Angel, and Rosie Hogarth is set where near, uh, near Chapel Market. That's yeah, right, isn't it? it's uh, there's the a, a, a street called Barron Street, which may or may not be. People speculate that it may be the, where he got his uh, nom de plume from. His and so what is it about? He wasn't born why, why is he such a great... Uh, uh, you know, we talk about him. It strikes me after Ian Sinclair, we talk about... Because of Ian Sinclair, we talk about Barron as a great London writer mm. at the moment. Though that's not always been the case. But at mm. the moment, we tend to think of him as a London writer. What is it about Barron's version of London that, that really resonates with people now, do you think? I, th I think when I first read it, it was just very exciting to read almost like proper proper literature, as I would call it, about yeah. the area in which yeah, yeah. I was I was um, living in. And it was very, Junction, yeah, Kingston and it, Road, it was an yeah. area I knew quite intimately by that point. And the fact that I could uh, could see someone who I think I would have agreed with, I knew his biography, I'd agree with, like politically, and I admired mm -hmm. in many ways. Writing about a kind he of was a, he was a communist, wasn't he? Yeah, and he was fought, involved fought at Cable Street, involved and, in fighting yeah. Mosley on uh, Ridley Road Market yeah. and things like that. But the fact he was writing about, I think, not ordinary people, but almost like people in the low life, a kind of underclass, and it was just very complex characters living in. To me, it felt like this very real place because I was living there and I could recognise aspects of it even fifty years later. Mm. Pete, you had a bit, didn't you, that you wanted well, to read from, yeah, the, from and, and the, about place? And before I do that, actually, I'd like to say something about... Um, so, so I was reading a lot of um, Emil Zola last year um, because Emil Zola, you know, he lived in Crystal Palace, so obviously he's a London writer. In The Low Life, <laughs> Harry Boy Begins... Did he really live in Crystal Palace? Yeah, he did, yeah. He was, and he was um, he after the Dreyfus. Yeah, no, he never, wrote, he never wrote, never wrote a London novel. He took lots of photographs of women on bicycles. There you go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um... 
So at the beginning of The Low Life, Harry Boy Burris is reading a load of um, Zola novels and he talks about how Zola's great. He says like, <laughs> yeah. there's lo- loads, yeah. of, loads of sex and violence, basically, which yeah. is quite true. Chris Zola is a terrific writer. He can be tougher than Mickey Spillane and when he gets onto sex, he's red hot. <laughs> but I am giving you the wrong idea about him. He is a serious writer. <laughs> Profound. Yeah. Terrific. And the way Zola so- writes about writes about Paris is reminds me of the way Baron writes about London so he's very no. specific about the architecture and he's very specific about the streets and yeah. he names the places and you know but also it's about the people who live there and the way he writes about them so it's not just about detailing the architecture it's about people who populate those and he, and he doesn't judge them he writes about you know the, the poor mm. but he's, he's yeah. never judgmental and there's a lot of humor in it you Very made similar. the point, Gary, that the book doesn't start there, does it? It starts in no for a, for a book that's such a hack, like a specifically a hackney novel. I think it's quite crucial that it actually begins in Finchley, and Harry Boy is having uh, dinner with his older sister and her husband, who've um, I think representing that kind of that move of, of the Jewish immigrant families, yeah. and I think a lot of Italian out of the, families out of the East, out end, of the East to, End, to North London, up into Northwest yeah. London, which is a kind of recognisable demographic shift and it it makes it clear that he is already essentially a, a survival of a different era yeah and, and that's yeah. interesting because a bit i'm going to read about is is where he starts off in the east end mm. and then he moves to hackney and then his family moves on and um the bit i'm reading so he's going back to he's going back to where he's from so it's cable street um i walked away from the pain but it was waiting for me in hessel street where she used to shop He's talking about his mum. The last ghetto market, a clutter of stalls and holes in the walls, smelling of poultry and vegetables and groceries. And in a tenement of dark red brick on the other side of Commercial Road where we lived, I stood in the entry and filled myself with the smells. It is always the smells that work on me. A thickness of mixed cooking, laundry on the boil, and the odours of many people close together. I love it, the stink of home, of all that is good. Mm. I love this whole passage where he's going back. There's a lot of nostalgia in it. He's gone back to where he was brought up. Um, cries, he? Yeah, he yeah. cries. Yeah, because he sees. I think he sees where his mum dies. Where his mum died in it. In so it. I'm just going to read the blurb on the back of the Harville edition because we did a quick props uh, to Mr. Bagley. Props. To, we believe this. This is written by Paul Bagley. Hello, Paul. There's no royalty for you here, I'm afraid. So this is just to to give listeners a, a, the the premise of the novel. East London, home of dog tracks and boarding houses, winners and losers. Mostly losers. Harry Boy is low life, scum. But if he leaves the track after the 13th race quids in, everyone will say, there goes Harry Boy Burst, king of the track. Trouble starts for Harry Boy when the Deaners move into his hackney boarding house. Quicker than he can place a bet on a dog, Harry Boy finds himself the admired hero and evil genius of the family, particularly for the child Gregory. But Harry Boy is also the victim of a secret guilt of his own, something unknown even to his doting sister Debbie, ensconced in her nouveau riche Finchley mansion. (laughs) As the debts from his addictions grow, Harry Boy sinks deeper into a criminal underworld where violence and revenge are the inevitable comeback to those who can't pay up. Now, what actually, you know what, that is a great blurb, and one of the reasons it's such a great blurb is what you said, Nicky, that it taps into the feeling that something really bad is going to happen. Bad things do happen, but they're never quite what you think they're going to be, right? Having reread it, I think this is more about the aftermath of something genuinely terrible yeah. happening. Just going back to the bit you were saying about the East End, though, um, I wanted to mention that with Influx Press, our very first uh, book we ever did was called it was an anthology of Hackney writing, and we took the title from this book, The Low Life. So I'd quite like to just read. That, that little bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. I think it's from the same section where he's revisiting um, his sort of East End childhood. In Black Lion Yard, I couldn't resist stopping at the old dairy. There used to be a cow house here in my childhood. Mother used to bring me here for a treat to buy warm milk from the cows. I can remember them, big, sad, patient creatures. Debbies, all of them, in their dark byres. Years after they were gone, you could still go into the yard and smell the rotten straw, and it was like being a child again. But now the wooden gates, ten foot high, were closed. I stuck my nose through a crack and sniffed, but no smell of the past lingered. And as I came away, I saw on a board that epitaph to all our yesterdays, acquired for development by. And we called the anthology acquired for development by because it was ah, right, um, right. about issues of like gentrification. And it was interesting to read this because mm. well, this is 1963, 
and you could write that sentence about London now. I mean, it is a book then, about gentrification in a, in yeah. a strange way, which mm-hmm. I hadn't sort of noticed when I read it the first time round. Yeah. But reading it the second time, it's about the incomers into Hackney, the middle class incomers, mm-hmm. and the changing of the, and and also the fact that his way out of gambling is theoretically buying property. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, he tries to buy slum housing. Yeah, yeah slum I mean, he buys, he, he buys for a while. Briefly, yes, four houses, briefly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> terrace of houses. That, that is a magnificent... Oh. I don't want to spoil it. The mm. set-piece scene where he, yeah. where he acquires property is genuinely, <laughs> palm-sweatingly mm. uh, unfortunate to read. It? I mean, it's just... <laughs> It's just because you know where it's going. He's already set himself up as a character who will who will let himself down, let the reader down, <laughs> let his sister down. Yes, I mean, it's yes. Like, it, it's, yes, and it's you watch him. You watch, it's like it is the that slow motion feeling of, of oh you know no no leave yeah. walk out now go now but he can't do it. Sadly, I have no audio of um, Alexander Barron, but I do have a clip that I want to play in now because it's it's sort of again it's very good for. Uh, giving us a sense of place and the kind of characters we're talking about. In his introduction, Ian Sinclair compares this to a film that came out in 1963 called The Small World of Sammy Lee, Mm. which is a great favourite of mine. Anyway, here is a clip from The Small World of Sammy Lee where Sammy, an inveterate gambler, played by Anthony Newley, travels across London and he's gone to his brother played by Warren Mitchell, who runs a grocery in the East End to try and get the money that he needs to pay back by the end of the day. Very similar premise to The Low Life. So let's just have a listen to that. So apart from the fact that you look terrible, how are you? I'm in a little spot of bother. Believe me, Lou, you know I hate asking you because you've been... How much? 300. 300? Terrible trouble, honestly. Well, I, I should hope so for three hundred pounds. I've got to have it by seven o'clock tonight. Three hundred pounds by seven o'clock. Three hundred pounds by seven. Here, here. Take. What do you want? Three, four hundred. Take a grand. What do you want? You better take it with you. Or I shall so offend it. My dear brother, have a look around you. Look at all the business I'm not doing. Look at the customers fighting to get in the door. They can't take the money fast enough. Three hundred pounds. All right, Lou, you don't understand. I understand. I understand. You're a machine. Would I come to you if I wasn't in dead stuff? Would I? Would if you stumped? You are mixing with the wrong crowd. Lou, will you listen to me? These fellas are right bandits. If I don't have this money by tonight, they're going to cut me up. Lou, remember when we were kids? Who was it who took the blame when you heaved a rock at that copper in Pedro Street, eh? Who was it who sorted out Maxi Abrams when he was going to bash your head in? Then do me a favour, eh, Lou? Hey. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, that perfect. film is yeah. so great. But, but, here's the thing. Again, no spoilers. What happens in the film is the thing that doesn't happen in the book. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right? So I... I, I well, I... Because I, 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 I think the, the scene where... There's so much to talk about in this book. And you, you were... Gary's just hinting at it. It's a very Jewish book. Full of that kind of great Jewish thing. But it is also about a man traumatised by war. Mm-hmm. And you were saying, Pete, earlier that, that Baron was first. I mean, his first book, which is uh, From the City, From the Plough, was a massive bestseller. And, you know, yes. hugely acclaimed. V.S. Pritchett said it was the, you know, the, the most honest, truest book about the Second World War ever written. So he's, his first kind of flush of fame came as a... Came as a, as a, as a and he, he fought in, in, in Sicily and... Mm-hmm. So you get, I get the sense of Harry Boy is somebody who is traumatised by by war, like a lot of people were in that sort of period. And there's something Ian Sinclair says in his introduction that was really interesting. There's a sort of moment when that was hip, night, uh, uh, the Gerald Cush Night in the City movie, mm. and then suddenly the attention moves up to the North and Alan Silito and... and and then when they, people come back yeah. to London, it's swinging it's London. Swinging 60, yeah. and, and it's sort of the, the kind of barren world is sort of people have moved on from. I mean, I think the barren world has some connections 
with absolute beginners and Colin McInnes and, and definitely you, you can sort of feel it's it's post-war reconstruction yeah. and the people living within it are, are sort of trying to figure out ways of making money I mean all the stuff about as we were saying about the buying of houses and selling I mean Marcia who is the the prostitute who slept with men, <laughs> but she makes her money uh, basically being a Rackman-like mm. kind of slum la- landlord. Yeah. You, I think what you said there, John, I think that's really interesting. The thing to understand about Baron is, and I, I know, um, Gary, we were talking about this earlier, the thing to understand about Baron is Baron has this phenomenal success with the mm. first book that he writes, From the City, From the Plough, Published 1948. I read it last week. I had never heard of it before we started mm, doing I, this. I read it sold up to like half a million yeah. copies. It is yeah. a stupendously good book. Yeah, I cannot book. understand why that isn't a Penguin classic or why it wouldn't I, I, be considered. You know, I, I, I agree. I, I read Humankind, which is the, which is the, the other one that I because uh, I knew we were reading this one. This is these are brilliant novels, mm. brilliant war novels. So Baron makes his name as a writer about war, yep. the soldier's experience of war. And then, you know, we get to The Low Life, which is written 15, 16, 17 years after his first success. And it strikes me two things are going on. He's writing, as you say, John, about being a survivor, and we can discuss a survivor of what. Yeah. But he's also, Baron himself is writing... Baron strikes me as the sort of writer who had an eye on what might work. And this is 63. We are in the thick of angry young men, kitchen sink drama, certainly in terms of film and in literature as well. I think there's a very clear stylistic gear change between the types of book that he had been writing and what he might get away Mm. in 1963. But also he said he wanted to write... He he resisted writing a Jewish book, right? Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting the timing, um, 1963, and you're talking about it is about the kind of the trauma from war. I mean, I just I reread Ken Walpole's excellent mm. uh, essay about Baron, and he's talking about 1961 is the uh, Adolf Eichmann trial, and it, that's really the time when what happened during the Holocaust really became. Yeah. No, and there was this sort of delayed it, understanding of what actually happened. It, it took maybe twenty years. Because we 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 had it all. You know, we had the world at war, and we had all the. You know, mm-hmm. but actually, if you if you were if from forty five to, yeah. to to sixty, I mean, there was Belson, which mm-hmm. was a, was a big story. But the, the actual scale, the mm-hmm. industrialized scale of the Holocaust, I think. Yeah, and I think there's just with you know with trauma of that kind of magnitude, I think there's a sort of real delayed effect. And having reread the book, when I first read it, I just thought this was a great London yeah. kind of crime caper because I was yeah. a, a younger yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. The yeah, no, I, 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 say, I read, I read it, it again. When I was reading Derek Raymond and, yeah. and, and other stuff, and I, yeah, I read it again. And I generally think it's him trying to address that that, yeah. that huge issue, especially there's, as a Jewish London. There's, a, there's an article online, a very good article by Susie Thomas. Yeah. about interpreting the book as being about the aftermath of the Holocaust. I really think it's it is. Now. Yeah. Yes, so it's a book about two things. Survival, no, three things, forgive me. Survival, denial, yeah. and escape. And a lot of what you see in Harry Boy, he's sort of lying to himself and the reader. So the way he presents <laughs> scenarios to the reader that he then can't stick to. He's a great narrator for saying, of course, when you want, you want, what you want to do is this, but I couldn't do it, mm. reader. I did something different. Because he's trying to find the thrill, mm. the way out, but he doesn't. Does he want the way out? There's also this fantastic thing in this book. I can feel my self growing more enthused. There's the fantastic thing in this book, which is incredibly pioneering about the narrator and Baron's attitude towards the multicultural community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very, can very, I, very, can, very can progressive. Because I, I, I was going to read this bit because this this bit kind of brings the two bits together. The story is obviously there's a family that move into the house. The little kid Gregory and Vic. A slightly feeble husband and Evelyn, who is pretty monstrous, <laughs> pretty <laughs> monstrous, and she is an out and out racist. Yeah. Who, of course, mm. as, you, as we all know, it still goes on today. Out and out racist, the first thing they say, I'm not prejudiced. But anyway, she doesn't like a black family moving into the house, she doesn't like it. And the D'Souza's, and he is this is Harry Boy, is had a meal with the D'Souza's. Millie said to me, Why don't she like us? 
I was too busy polishing my plate to answer. It was a Saturday. They called me down to help them dispose of a chicken in chilli sauce. Joe said, I tell you why, Mill. We got too much life. We're not liked because we have too much life in us. Through a mindful, I said, maybe. You, Joe said, you got nothing against us, Harry. I tell you why, you got plenty of life too. I seen you eat. Eat? Yeah, I watched you eat that chicken. Boy, the way you tore that wing off and crunched that bone and sucked the marrow out and wiped your plate, you sure made a meal of it. So, listen, that's how I like to see a man eat. But not her, not that lady downstairs. Well, she doesn't like me so much either. Go on, man, you're the best of pals with them. In a friendly way, she hates me too. He thought over this for a moment and then said, Sure, sure, I get it. You see, I said, the way we eat, that way we live, you and me, Joe, we mop the plate dry. We suck the last gob of marrow. We lick our fingers. From our fathers and our grandfathers, we know hunger and we value food. In our blood, we know an axe can fall on us at any second. So we live. We live. Sure, Joe said. Sure, I nearly added. And these haters of life, they can even murder babies. Because that moment brought back to me like a twitch of pain in the head. My fear that a little son of mine might have been packed into a dark, suffocating, sealed truck for five days and nights and sent to the furnaces. Mm. Is this the yeah, wow. that amazing, I mean, amazing shift gear, from life into change, just... Right? Incredible, yeah, yeah. incredible. I mean, that's, that, that's what I got most from this book, is that... Oof, this is a much bigger book than I remember it being. Yeah, and it's the same thing. You know, I'd, I'd forgotten all that stuff. Yeah. I'd, and I would read it again a couple of weeks ago, and I'd just completely forgotten that there was any reference to, to the war at all, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's radical because it's, it's black characters talking in a novel in 1963 and being sympathetic and being, you know, it, it, there's nothing forced about it. And it's also that putting the Holocaust into a novel. Mm. It's also, yeah. we've got to say, though, as I say, it's very... Um, it's very uh, hip as well. It, I mean, uh, yes. for 1963, it's a very kind of... Well, I'm showing you the seamier mm. side of life. Mm. And I thought it would be worth... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, this is not a criticism of Barron at all. I'm fascinated by Barron. Barron would write in any genre that he could. Do you know he, he wrote episodes of To Serve Them All My, all my Days? Did you, did yes, you that? <laughs> by R.F. Delderfield, who we've and, featured on the podcast and, before. And, um, uh, Jane Eyre and the, I mean he was a journeyman I mean he t- turned his hand to anything he wrote The Low, the low Life is published in 63 and it, it does well enough that there's a sequel he writes a sequel <laughs> called Strip Jack Naked and that comes out in 1966 and as far as anyone can tell none of us have read it right? as far as anyone can tell the relationship between The Low Life and Strip Jack Naked is like the relationship between The Ipcrest File and Billion Dollar Brain <laughs> <laughs> where what started off as a gritty realistic thriller of the streets has turned into a ludicrous fantasy and, I, and the reason I say that is I had a look on Twitter to see if anyone had read Strip Jack Naked right and only there's only one person who has ever mentioned it on Twitter, or for that matter, Goodreads, and it is our friend Kirkdale Books. Oh, I asked him. I said, "You've read this, and the, all you've said about it is it's crap. <laughs> can you write me a paragraph giving us a review that we can share with listeners? Because other than the review from the New Statesman in 1966, this will be the most significant statement about Strip Jack Naked by Alexander Barron. Here we, and here he is. This is what he wrote." Eight years ago, I learned there was a sequel to The Low Life, a book I love. At some expense, I ordered it immediately, assuming it would be similar. That's to say, not an ounce of fat on it, brilliant characters and atmosphere, a cracking yarn, and some good old-fashioned aggro. The book arrived. No, 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 and again, no. All I can remember about it now is when the book abruptly moves to Venice, (laughs) a city which is A, not London, and B, boring. Harry Boy hooks up with a girl who is nicked off Holly Golightly. She rips him off, or something. My diary shows that the next book I read was Don DeLillo's Libra. Perhaps I could interest you in a copy of that instead. <laughs> See, that sounds terrible. I think the idea of taking Harry Boy out of London... Well, he goes to Brighton, doesn't he? Is it Brighton he goes to? That's actually, you're right. Yes, they do go on a... But, on a kind of and it works. Because they, they don't really leave the hotel room. Yeah. Though. But the point I was, point I was trying to make is about Baron, that I can see Baron's thinking to himself, OK, well, Kitchen Sink was 62. <laughs> Here we are in 66. Caper movies are where it's at. Yeah. I'll take him to Venice. If you yeah. Google Strip Jack Naked, as I just have, the first 
three are about books, and after that it goes straight to Pornhub. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> let, me, let me just say a bit about Baron himself. So, Baron was born Alec Bernstein in Hackney, North London in 1917. Uh, he was educated at Hackney Down School, where he was drawn into the anti-fascist struggle against Mosley's black shirts. Uh, he left school at 16 to work as a clerk so he could become more involved in the youth wing of the Communist Party. And allegedly he was like being basically groomed by the Communist Party to become a leading figure in the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. He enlisted in the army in 1940, much against the wishes of his comrades, um, and served actively in several campaigns before being invalided out in 1946. And when he was, he had some kind of breakdown. And he was asked, what would, you, what would help you recuperate? And he said, give me a typewriter. And so they gave him a typewriter on which he wrote the half million stroke million selling from the city from the plough. And then he kind of, he takes on this fascinating career where he, he keeps writing. He writes 14 novels. Mm. And although he can't, his final novel is called Franco is Dying, mm. which Gary's got a copy of there, look. That's not in print, that one. That's definitely not in print, no. And that's got Spanish Civil War, kind of. Yeah. Look at that. But he also wrote the script for a film called The Siege of Sydney Street, uh, a, a dramatisation of that siege. He was a TV writer, as we said. And his books, even in the late 70s, he wrote a novel called Gentle Folk, which was turned into a BBC TV series. I didn't, did not know that. So the all. idea of him becoming, having disappeared into kind of... We're talking about him partly because Ian Sinclair talks about him. Mm-hmm. Is is really not to understand where he was coming from in some mm. ways. He was a popular and populist writer. Both yeah. those things. Mm. Absolutely. But so why is he not better known? It's, it's odd. I think I think Barron's actually in some ways almost like quite a traditional writer, especially books like Rosie Hogarth. They're almost Dickensian in some ways, but mm. which I suppose perhaps that's a little bit. Unfashionable now. Too many mm-hmm. genres. I mean, it's too many. Yeah, people don't like a writer who, who writes across genre. I think he's written. Mm. Like you said, it's it's what kind of writer is Baron? I wouldn't really be able to answer that. People say he's a London writer. Yes, yeah. is he well, a war well, writer? He was a war yes. writer first, and yeah. then he was a yeah. kind of a London writer. And but you couldn't even say. What's so interesting about him is, although narrative is a big uh, strength of his, and narrative is foregrounded in it, in his books, but you wouldn't say. That's the thing that leads the way. Even though I'd loved his London books, I'd never thought of reading his war books. Um, I read this for the first time uh, in preparation for this, From the City, From the Plough. And and the surprising thing is there isn't that much war in it. I mean, you know, it's not about fighting. My favourite bit in that book is where where there's a a man in a trench and he's sort of having a cigarette on his own and his his close friend has gone out on patrol and not come back again. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he's just sitting there smoking and reading the newspaper. It's about him being alone suddenly but not mourning because you can't do that as a soldier. You've just got to get on with things. And then suddenly his his, his friend returns and they just sort of settle down next to each other and just continue. They pick up almost as if nothing's uh, happened. I think it's a very unsentimental book as well. It's um, I wouldn't say it's cynical either. It's just... It's almost like this is what war is. It's very, mm. I don't know, would you say it's matter-of-fact? It's, I I it's, it's there, there's some anger towards the end. Yeah. I mean, but he gets quite angry at the end. About he does, but he does a really fascinating thing, which is that he doesn't dehumanise anyone. No. So although you might have expected somebody with his communist background to write something that was, you know, lions led by donkeys, mm-hmm. he doesn't do that. He makes it clear that there are good and bad people in all strata of society that he wants to write about and that war dehumanises all of them. Mm. Every individual has their own challenge to face within the the theatre of war. What I really love about this book is the final few chapters, and I think this is sort of the point, bad things happen, then more bad things happen then more bad things happen. The relentlessness of it, the unfairness of it, as you say, Peter, it's sort of he saves it up for the end. But what a good book. Mm. What a good book. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the low life, I guess, is kind of calamity upon calamity. There is a brilliant... Yes. I mean, we, without giving anything away, there's a t- you really think the worst has happened, and then somehow he manages to pull, pull, pull that out at the end. You know, <laughs> in a, I think we should really talk about his... Um, 
he's not only a gambling addict, but I think it's relevant to all of us. He's also a book addict. Yeah. yeah. It's very interesting that, that the character, he, he wins loads of money and he goes to Charing Cross Road and stocks up on, and it, on it, novels. And it's interesting yeah. that his, his, his novel the, addiction is, is equated with his... The relationship with Vic. Him the, being a lowlife. The, the guy in the house is sort of mm. built around Vic being a reader. And yeah. All backlisted listeners will be able to relate to this, surely. Yeah. And what you say, Gary, is absolutely right. He's, he's, a, he's a reader. He's yeah. a reader. For all the good it does him. Yeah. That's the thing. <laughs> we can relate to that as well. There is a branch library two blocks from where I live, a noisy place. At one end, kids scamper around the shelves of their section, shrieking with laughter till the librarian hushes them, uncomfortably quiet for a while, then soon shrieking again. At the other end, the housewives chatter, waiting to rush at the librarian like gabbling hens at a fistful of seed every time she comes to the shelf with another armful of romances. At the end of one afternoon, I went in to look for some thrillers. I like these books, the way they scratch on the nerves as I lie in bed. <laughs> Chandler and Hammett are my favourites. Yeah. You don't get writing like theirs nowadays. I've read all Mickey Spillane, but he lacks class. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was looking along the shelves when a fellow came round the end of a bookcase. It was Dina, the husband. He said, hello, seen anything good? I said no, and he held a couple of books out. He said, I've got these. Two new novels, fashionable names, the kind that are praised in the highbrow Sunday papers. Every week these papers find another writer who has, quote, earned his place in the front rack of contemporary writing. This front rank must be miles long by now. There must be a lot of poor nits like this Vic, who are so busy keeping up with this front rank lot that they never have time to read a real book. He said, do you read much? I said, not much. <laughs> oh, it's do you think that was the same library that you first discovered it? I don't know, actually. That's a good point. I should investigate that. I think for the sake of creating a beautiful journey <laughs> and some structure, we should, we should assume it was. It's entirely possible. Um, I think, as we said at the top, the thing I, I love about this book is there's almost nothing this book doesn't do. Yeah. It packs an awful lot into um, it's. I mean, it's very short. 180 pages, yeah. something like that. So it's, you can read it fast, you'll be gripped by it, it goes pretty deep. The writing is so spot on. Mm. And again, we what's so it's such a mark of his talent as a writer that the the mode of storytelling in this book is completely different yeah. to from the city from the plan. Yeah. And yet and yet they both work. Well, I think I don't know about it's the only one of the ones I've read that's first person as well. So it's mm, the first yeah. one that's written in that style yeah. and he brings out the kind of um Jewishness of Harry Boy, yeah. straight away. I mean, there's there's a bit right at the very beginning, but he he never ladles it on. What does he say? Four years, a lifetime now. We should have such luck. Yeah, yeah. Mm. it's like the great scene with with, with Siskin, the, land, the landlord. He scuttles around downstairs. He just he meets him on the stairs and said, he says to him to Siskin, "In God, you don't believe now? God, excuse me, I don't know this gentleman. He looks after people. If that's his job, he must be the biggest messer in creation." Go to sleep, Mr. Siskin. Millions are murdered. I should believe in God. Mm. Boaz, listen. Above this earth is nothing. On it is only wild beasts. Men. Men are wild beasts. Shouldn't we know? Let them all drop dead. So what's this to do with burglars? Burglars? They come in and break your head in. For nothing. Your head they break in. Boaz, I'll give you advice. Keep your door locked. I'll give you advice, Siskin. Go to bed. It's after three o'clock. <laughs> I went back to my room. I was too tired to sleep. So after an hour, I took codeines and was like a dead man till midday. It's, it's interesting because Baron was, uh, he was, he was an atheist. And um, I've, got, I've got the Ken Walpole interview he did with him um, talking about this, why he didn't want to write about uh, sort of Jewish themes at first. Um, he said he always had a personal rebellion against the idea of a separate Jewish identity. My father and both my grandfathers were free thinkers, and so am I. I am an atheist. I never wanted to live within this defensive world called the Jewish community. But then to ask why he comes to this theme, he just says, I had something to get off my chest. And it's quite interesting, his own ambivalence with with Jewishness, I think, is very interesting in this book. I mean, it's about food and it's about the Holocaust, really, mm-hmm. the Jewishness that comes out yeah. of it, yeah. isn't it? And, and a certain amount about family, but it's not about... Religion. It's not at all about religion. No. Uh, well, we have to wrap up. We do. We have to. Listeners, you know, will we lie to you? <laughs> this is it is such a great book. And we have to, if, if there's any doubt about this book remaining in print, that has to be addressed um, more soon, I'm sure. That's it, folks. Our dogs have crossed the finishing line. But before we take the boat to the Canaries, it's just time for the Unbound Project Worth Backing of the Week. 
It's murdered by clerks by Twitter's medieval death bot, an illuminating collection of in-depth looks at the most interesting cases from medieval coroner's rolls. For example, Thomas, son of Henry Robikin, died in 1286 after cutting off his left foot and then his left hand in a frenzy. Agnes Bogwiller died 1433, lying in bed near a weak wall of clay that wall fell on her and crushed her to death. <laughs> so it's great. What's great, the book will investigate these individual cases. So you get not just the one-liner that you get on Twitter, but a, so a lovely slim Halbat volume. Um, remember, if you pledge for it or any of the other 371 Unbound projects currently live on the site, you get free postage on that pledge by entering the special code BARON as you check out. <laughs> Uh, thank you to Peter and Gary, to our producer Nicky Birch, to Unbound, and to our sharp new sponsor, Spoke. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at Backlisted Pod, on Facebook, Backlisted Podcast, and at Unbound's online magazine, Boundless, unbound.com forward slash boundless. Also, if you felt like rating us on iTunes, that would be great. Also, if you have rated us on iTunes, thank yeah. you very, very much. We have just. Hit 100 topped 100 five-star ratings Ooh. so thank you that is absolutely brilliant we really appreciate it yeah thanks for listening we'll be back in a fortnight until then good night he is a serious writer <laughs> profound terrific <laughs> <laughs>